Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 270 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for tuning in to this interview episode where I track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that I can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by bar consultant and spirits expert, Philip Duff, who has a whole laundry list of credentials too long to go into here, including his own line of spirits, Old Duff Geneva, an impressive string of bars that he's propelled to success, and of course, a partnership with our past guest, Elaine Duff. In this part one of a two-part conversation, Philip and I dive into the idea of bars and bar brands at scale, drawing from his experience as a trainer at one of the world's most important chains as a jumping off point for a discussion about what works and what doesn't when growing a brand beyond just a single bar. But before we dive into the interview, let's take a pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Enzoni. Selected based on a passing reference to Match Bar in London, you'll need the following ingredients to make it. One ounce London Dry Gin, one ounce Bitter Red Italian Aperitivo, two thirds of an ounce of fresh lemon juice, one half ounce Rich Simple Syrup, which is a two to one ratio of sugar to water, and five fresh green seedless grapes. If they're not fresh, they're raisins. Muddle the grapes in the bottom of a cocktail shaker, then add ice, the liquid ingredients, and shake until well chilled and properly diluted. Strain the drink into a rocks glass over ice and enjoy. Developed in 2002 at the aforementioned Match Bar in London by bartender Vincenzo Errico, this cocktail is a logical riff on a classic that solidly identifies itself as a riff rather than a thinly veiled facsimile. I mean, think about it. Most of us have had a Negroni and realized a sip or two in that we were actually craving a bit of acidity, that we leaned too eagerly on our instincts in order to drink we didn't actually want. Well, the Enzoni has a solution. Let's swap out that pesky vermouth for a bit of lemon, dope in some extra sugar to make it sing, and oh, by the way, were you missing the grape character of the vermouth? No problem, here's your grapes right at the bottom of the shaker. It's a charming drink that makes deep, meaningful eye contact with the original Negroni while gleefully muddling a fistful of green grapes and probably reaching into the ice bin with the other hand to grab a few cubes for your date's glass of red wine. But hey, sometimes that's what you need, and thank goodness the Enzoni is here to provide it. So, now that you're equipped with a slightly irreverent, totally refreshing riff on the Negroni to bust out at your next get-together, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In part one of my two-part conversation with bar consultant and spirits expert Philip Duff, some of the topics we discuss include how a small Irish town of 5,000 people played host to the busiest pub in all of Ireland, thanks in part to a trip to Texas, some stained glass, and a knack for documenting its drink recipes. The shift in consumer consciousness from fun, flair-driven pours to more complex and serious cocktails with the opening of the Atlantic Bar and Grill in London in 1995. 
How real estate moguls, hotel chains, and venture capitalists radically transformed the rules of the game and opened the doors for mid- and high-end bar and restaurant chains in the 90s and 2000s. And what it takes to train and retain a high-quality bar staff in the wake of a pandemic that decimated the talent pool available to our industry. Along the way, we cover the design similarities between Air Force One and certain bar programs, the heavy-hitting spill-stop 28550 pour spout, how to say hamburger in Italian, and much, much more. As you can see, this conversation is about what it takes to scale and maintain quality in a bar program. It's a bit high-level, I guess, for folks who might just want to learn how to make it decent old-fashioned at home, but don't sleep on this. If you understand the forces at play behind the bars and restaurants that are filling seats, making headlines, and printing money, you'll have a much better grasp on what a quality drinking or dining experience means for you. And that is certainly knowledge worth pursuing. Philip is a wealth of information, and if you happen to be or aspire to be in the bar or spirits industry, you should subscribe to his podcast, The Philip Duff Show, for wide-ranging conversations on all sorts of boozy, hospitality-driven topics. But for now, please enjoy part one of my conversation with Philip Duff. Philip, how are you? Eric, good morning. I'm brilliant, actually. It is a lovely day here in New York, and it has been utter shite for the last 48 hours. Yes, sir. It's been what Scottish people call Drake. It's grey, drizzling all day, all evening, all night. Not even cold enough that you could revel in it, but it was basically Irish weather, right? And I did not move here for this shit, but today it's uh, it's actually glorious. Yeah, no, it's we we finally got a break from the same the same system. I think we had a we shared a a, a shitty storm system that wouldn't go away. So uh, same here. Uh, glad to be here with you. Uh, but for for my listeners who haven't had the chance to judge with you at ADI for several years and who may not be listeners of your podcast just yet, could you just give us a, give us the quick 411 on, on who Philip Duff is and what you do? Yeah, I'm basically an old bartender. And I'd like to think I'm more of an example than a warning, but the jury is out on that, especially if you ask my wife. So uh, born and raised in Ireland, started bartending there when I was 15, uh, graduated in marketing from college, bartended all through high school and college. And what everyone did in Ireland back then, as soon as I graduated, I left because the country was fucked. And I moved to London, where I continued my bartending career, working in places as diverse as uh, the Hyde Park Hotel, which had a separate entrance to the Queen, to dodgy pubs, to TGI Fridays. And from there, illegally, briefly, in New York, uh, I worked at a bar on the beach in the Cayman Islands because I thought the movie Cocktail was career guidance, not entertainment. And then I was asked to come help open a chain of bars in starting in the Netherlands. And I went for three months and stayed for 17 years, uh, during which time I became a full-time consultant. I opened the first ever bar in Holland to get in the world's 50 best bars, Door 74. I helped uh, create the Balls Geneva that's out there in the world. I was on the marketing team, the tasting panel. I even wrote the text for the back of the bottle. And then I met an American lady who lived in New York, and we compromised, and I've lived in New York for the last 12 years. (laughs) And more or less full-time, what I do is advising brands and uh, distribution companies on how to engage with the on-premise. And as I say, bartenders. So that could be through competitions, engagement programs, experience, uh, presenting seminars and cocktail festivals, training their own staff, right up to 
repositioning or turnkey creating brands right from nothing. I just created a gin and a spiced rum for a client and they came out very well. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's who I am. Yeah, drop the names of those because uh, I know that you're you're just in the in the launch phases for those two products. Yes, they'll be available pretty much exclusively online in both um uh, well throughout the USA, but it'll be Moonbird Gin and Goats Spiced Rum. Mm. And they'll be available online to buy straight off the website. In So 82% of legal drinking age adults in the US should be able to get them shipped right to their house. But if you're in New York or Los Angeles, you might be able to actually get them in one or two flagship bars. We're still working on that. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, yeah, so you are a busy boy, both historically and I'm sure on a day-to-day basis. And I, it, it is, I, I can't believe that we didn't drop this right off the bat. Elaine Duff former guest on the modern bar cart podcast so we've got the we've got the the full couple now represented on on this show but uh well so i wanted to talk to you today about something that's been on my brain for a little while and you know i think both you and i are in what i would call primary cocktail markets right new york is obviously if there was a primary cocktail market it would of course be new york or london two places with which you're very familiar. DC, I still consider very much a a primary cocktail market in that we had a thriving drink scene up to uh, when COVID hit. And obviously, like everybody else, we had to weather that storm in similar ways uh, to go outdoor dining, stuff like that. And uh, we're sort of coming back from it now. And, you know, I want to talk about the different, I guess, historical trends you've seen in bars, and then maybe we can eventually segue into some of the stuff that's happening in DC here. So could you, could you talk a little bit about your very earliest days bartending and sort of how you got trained up as a bartender in the very unique setting where that happened? Yeah. And it was definitely not normal, right? So I grew up in a tiny little town called (laughs) Scaries, County Dublin, uh, about 40 minutes north of Dublin city centre on the coast. It's a tiny little dormitory community of 5,000 people then, and it's 5,000 people now, basically. It hasn't grown at all. Um, a place like that nonetheless supported 12 pubs. Going out drinking was called doing the Stations of the Cross, but it wouldn't support... <laughs> um, a lot of full-time bartenders. So a lot of us kids, when you got to be a certain age, like 15 or 16, if you were tall enough, you could get hired to bartend because they needed people. It was the only way that it worked. And there was one bar that everybody wanted to work at because it was the most fun and the most glamorous. And it was called the Coast Inn. And what it was, the son of a pub owner had gone to Texas Right, I think he might have had relatives there in the late 1970s. And he saw what was then only the second TGI Fridays in the world. And it was printing money. So for the younger listeners, Fridays now is not what Fridays was. It used to be the hottest place in town, a singles bar, a place where you went to pick up uh, members of the opposite sex and have fun. And it was primarily a bar with a restaurant area. It's now completely flipped and it's families and and all that kind of thing. But it was by a long way the hottest ticket. And this uh, son of a scary pub owner came back and he basically opened uh, a very good knockoff. Now, he opened it in something like 1978. There was no TGI Fridays outside the USA at that stage. Right? So this 
bar, a sizable bar. And we had, you know, the stained glass window, Tiffany lamps. We flared. We made cocktails. We made those kind of cocktails. It was frequently the busiest bar in Ireland. And let's just pause for a minute. It was only open five nights a week, right, in a tiny suburb. Imagine how the competition is for busiest bar in Ireland. And uh, I got trained up with a manual and spec sheets and a setup list and a breakdown list at the right age of 15. And it kind of screwed me for the rest of my career because everywhere I went after that, I'd be like, oh, great. Thanks for hiring me. So where's the manual? And they'd be like, manual? Manual what? Yeah. You know, you're going to work You're going to work with Dave and he'll show you how to fill the fridge. Mm-hmm. That's your training, buddy. Mm-hmm. So I went on almost inevitably. I did work in dodgy pubs and fancy hotels and for groups and all that. And I actually was, I think, the only person from the coast who went on to work for TGI Fridays. And I became an NSO, a trainer, a new store opener as well. Uh, I almost inevitably became a consultant because of that, because I had literally manuals and information and I knew how to work faster and cleaner and how to teach somebody to free pour so you're way more accurate than you are with a jigger, uh, all that fun stuff. And I was living in early 1990s London. So the cocktail revolution, uh, which we are now more than two decades into, kicked off in London in the early 1990s. There was rumblings, various bits and pieces, people doing something cool here, something cool there. But the generally accepted kickoff point for this second cocktail golden age was the opening of a place called the Atlantic Bar and Grill in London in 1995. It was opened by another Irishman, much more successful than me, named Oliver Payton. He had been a nightclub promoter, and for a while he actually imported Absolute Vodka into the UK. And he despaired of having to go to a booming nightclub to get a late night drink. So he opened an elegant late night place where, you know, you had to dress up. It wasn't a disco. There was no booming music. It was just classy. And he hired the best bartender he knew to run the bars, a guy called Dick Bradsell, who'd spent most of his career working in private members clubs. And almost every important bartender that's come out of England traces their training back to the Atlantic Bar and Grill or somebody who works there. So people right. went from there and opened up the Lab Bar in London, etc., uh, etc., et and so forth. And I was there. So I got to learn these things like, wow, fresh lemon juice does make a difference. Uh, back before there was bar shows, before there was the internet, before there was social media, you literally had to learn these things by going to the bar and watching the bartenders do. So that was... I kind of started off with Fridays and fell sideways into this second cocktail golden age. And since then, I've kept learning, I hope, and uh, kept distilling my knowledge from being a global ambassador into being somebody who manages ambassadors or creates ambassador programs into somebody who, you know, sits and thinks about, okay, what does education look like in 2023 and what's going to look like next year? But that's kind of how I came up. One of the things that I appreciate about about your show and why I, after listening to a few episodes, hit subscribe is because you have the breadth of knowledge that you just described. Uh, when I was getting my MFA in poetry, it's something that the late um, Stanley Plumley would refer to as going up and down the register, right? So you can go up register and talk about the Atlantic Bar and Grill and Dick Bradsell and like 
you know, obviously like uh, some, some of the amazing stuff that, and cutting edge stuff that was going on there at that point. But then you can also go back to, you know, the, the 15 years old and getting trained, you know, with a manual and with spec sheets and, and all that. And, and, you know, go as, go as low down quote unquote as, as flair, even though, you know, there's, there's some, there's some arguments to be made, I'm sure as to whether flair is truly, you know, the, the low, the low culture thing that we think of it as today. Um, I'd like to zoom out a little bit and see if maybe you have thoughts on cultural or historical trends that tend to push us in the direction of chains and things that scale and spec sheets and like, I guess, things that an NSO trainer would go from city to city doing versus historical and cultural trends, perhaps economic trends as well, that might push us more in the direction of things like the Atlantic Bar and Grill or Milk and Honey and and, and places like that. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it's easy to look back on uh, history and say, ah, well, this happened, so therefore people were feeling like that and the bars looked like this. You know? The one of the greatest, largest, possibly the largest drink trend that has ever existed was tiki, or as we now call it, tropical, right? Mm -hmm. Old wine, new bottles, as the Russians say. That originated post-prohibition. And it ran for 50 years at you know full strength and top quality and there's lots you can say that oh people wanted to get away or they were worried about the cold war or the 737 was invented so they're able to go to the caribbean vacation they came back and they wanted that as well or mm -hmm. america had bases in the south pacific to bomb the living shit out of japan and soldiers came back would talk about hula skirts you can jam all this in but i sincerely believe that in the bar business like the drinks business as William Goldman said, nobody knows anything, right? We look at our wins and we talk about how genius we are and we forget about the stuff that we got wrong. In regards to chains, it's interesting. We're definitely at a time when people want curated personal experiences, right? At the same time, they want certainty. So most people don't have an international global network of bar friends like you or me. So they might know their way around, you know, the Lower East Side of Manhattan or East London or Silver Lake, Hollywood or El Raval in Barcelona, where all the cool bars are. But take them out of their city and plonk them down in Lisbon or Sydney and they're fucked. So if there's a death and co that they love going to in New York and they see a death and co in Sydney, they'll swim to it like a sailor mm -hmm. to a rescuing boat. Right. And look at the old ads for Hilton. They were unashamedly aimed at Americans abroad. Like there's one famous ad. It's actually featured in Mad Men, but it was a real ad. It was like, you know, how do you say hamburger in Italian? Hilton. How do you say uh, you know, salads in French, Hilton. So there is that. I, I'd like to throw something in there, though, which is a fairly new-ish development, which is to say venture capital and private equity. So 
people with lots of money have always been a function of chains, right? They financed hotel chains. Yeah. And hotels, like any other business, are essentially a subset of real estate. And there's a lot more money in real estate, right? So a real estate operator will buy a plot of land and then buddy up with a hotel operator to build a hotel. That will increase the value of the land and you'll be able to charge the hotel rent and all that. Um, hotels underwent a seismic change in the 19, uh, what 90s. Uh, whenever it was that Ian Schrager got out of prison, one of the co-founders of Studio 54 was locked up for tax evasion. And when he got out, he had a, a criminal record, of course, which means in the US, you can't have a liquor license. So his first hotel, I think, was the Delano in Miami. And he had to partner up with outside F&B people to run the F&B because he couldn't have a liquor license. And this turned out to be a genius idea because he created destination boutique bars where you wanted to go in and drink in the bar, even if you weren't staying in the hotel. And later on, you had, of course, the Met Hotel in London, which is very famous for the same reasons, and all the other various Schrager hotels. He created the addition chain for Marriott. So let me return to private equity. Private equity drives real estate. Real estate drives hotels and resorts. What we've seen in the last few decades, and a particularly good example is Gordon Ramsay, is private equity getting in on the restaurant business. So they'll come to a Gordon Ramsay or a Daniel Balud or a Jean-Georges van Gerichten or a Jason Atherton, and they'll say, hey, we've got all the money in the world. We've got all the money you need. Uh, we want you to open an absolute shitload of restaurants. And Gordon or Jean-Georges will say, awesome. And then the private equity guys will say, yeah, we'd like you to open one every six weeks for the next three years. And they'll say, okay. So they are putting the bar and the restaurant inside the hotel that's on the plot of land owned by the private equity people. And that can really, really turbocharge stuff. It can also put if you've ever been to Gordon Ramsay Fish and Chips, an undue strain on the quality of the brand of the chef or the bar being expanded. Yeah, we, we do have, we actually do have one of those at the wharf here in DC, which is exactly the type of development that you're, that you're describing. There's hotels, there's a music venue, the Anthem, there's, uh, and of course there's the Gordon Ramsay. And we did, we had the Daniel, the Daniel Bouloud in city center. I don't, believe that survived the pandemic but yes dc is i definitely you know uh some of the specific exemplars you just listed as well as the general principle that you're describing that's certainly going on here for sure yeah and i'm a former i wouldn't describe myself as a chain guy i have worked in chains um like franchises they're very successful businesses they have a very good success rate done correctly you get access to, you know, a head office level of HR, a head office level of financial accounting, a head office level of marketing knowledge, and you can bring PR in-house. So all that stuff works really, really well, right? And it can help you out if you make clever deals. Um, it does become a big organization. Like famously, the Schrager Sanderson Hotel in London they had a broken door going into the bar that remained broken for something like six months because they had to get approval from New York to get a fucking door fixed in London. Mm. So that can hamstring you as well. But if you bring it to bars and cocktails, which I think is where we're going with this, um, 
you're hamstrung by the quality of people that you can uh, attract to come to an interview, recruit, train, manage, and develop, right? Development is perhaps the crucial bit. If you've only got one bar and somebody, you you do an open call or you make, place an ad, someone shows up and you're like, that woman is fucking awesome. And you hire her as a bar back and she becomes a bartender and she becomes a head bartender and she becomes a manager and a general manager. Well, she's kind of tapped out there if you've only got one location. If you open more locations, she could become an operations manager or a regional manager or something like that. And you can keep your staff. That's a big plus for having uh, multiple outlets, right, is to retain your long-term staff because they are a literal asset to your business. And I think something that is a, a ticking time bomb, if you will, right now that I haven't really seen addressed is we didn't just got our bench of bartending and mixology talent during COVID. We completely obliterated benches and benches and benches of managers, shift managers, assistant general managers, general managers. They're gone and they have not been well replaced in most places, mm -hmm. right? Service standards have declined. Staff aren't being managed. You know, we're past the hectic just past COVID 2022 thing. Um, and I'm sure it's the same with you. So the speed at which you can roll out your chain is dependent on the speed at which you can recruit, train, et cetera, et cetera. And if you build a cadre of experienced senior managers, well, you can roll out like a motherfucker, no problem. But there's very little attention being given to management training in the world of bars and restaurants. Everyone just reads Will Godara's book and calls it good. Right. It's a very good book, by right. the way. But, right. you know. <laughs> uh, wow, that's, uh, I, I love so many of the points that you just made. I, I think the, the invisibility of the, what you might call the middle management of uh, F&B program is something I think that most people don't really consider. I mean, it's uh, it's sort of like the the secret sauce that keeps everything else lubricated and functioning well. So that's that's interesting. I, I'll have to I'll have to think about that a little bit. But I, I I want to take the sort of logic structure that you just described of like what makes chains operate so efficiently and effectively, and what makes them so scalable. And maybe if you're willing to kind of take a look at Death & Co, uh, because they're starting to chainify. Death & Co, the Dead Rabbit. Um, uh, Death & Co is up to four, maybe five locations now. Dead Rabbit has how many? New York, Denver, DC. DC. New Orleans? Or was that the Dead Rabbit? Is so. that the Dead Rabbit in New Orleans? Dead Rabbit, yeah, which is not really a spoiler alert, might not happen at all. But yeah, I think Death & Co. has like one non-Death & Co. bar in there. Okay. So you might be right. Yeah. It might be about four. Sure. De Dead Rabbit's currently at two and a half, okay. which is to say New York, uh, Austin, and they've opened a quick service place, which I went to just on Saturday, uh, in the Moynihan train hall inside Penn Station mm -hmm. uh, here in New York as well. It's called the Irish Exit because of course it is. Right, right. 
Hello, modern bar cart listeners. It's Jordan Hughes from High Proof Preacher. I wanted to let you know about my new cocktail and product photography e-course called Cocktail Camera 101, and it is now open for new members. The course is all online, it's self-paced, and you have lifetime access to the material. So go to cocktailcamera.com slash 101 to enroll and use the code THEMODERNBARCART, all caps, no spaces, for 75% off enrollment. I hope you check it out and learn how to up your cocktail and bar photography game with me. Cheers. So, well, I mean, let's look at Death & Co then because I was a little bit you know, calling me skeptical. I've, I've been to New York a handful of times. I don't get there nearly as much as I'd like to, uh, haven't made it to death and code despite having gone to a Maria Margo, which is certainly a sin oh, on, which is a hundred fees away. Right. Eric. Yeah. Certainly <laughs> not even <laughs> a sin, a sin for which I'm, I, I do not excuse myself, but you know, when, when it was announced that they were coming to DC, my initial reaction was, Hmm, you know, I certainly don't begrudge anybody the opportunity to make money, the opportunity to scale. God knows I've tried to do it with my business and failed. Um, but uh, I, I kind of felt myself being like, well, do I do I want my first experience at a death and code to be at a death and co or at the death and co? Right. There's sort of a there's a proper noun versus common noun thing going on once you multiply. Your MFA is showing, Eric. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Uh <laughs> And so, you know, so that, that was my initial impression. It was a gut impression. And, and then, so, uh, months later, they're about to open. Turns out I have uh, a friend who's on the opening staff and I get the invite to the friends and family and, uh, and I was able to, to go. It was, I, it was in, as we mentioned, the old Columbia room space, which is beautiful and didn't need a whole ton of work. They, they trans, they transformed the inside into a bit darker, you know, a bit lower light, um, less airy, less breathy, less white themed, more dark themed. Uh, but otherwise it, it was fairly recognizable as the old Columbia room location. And they rolled out a menu of about 10 drinks for friends and family that I, I would imagine the logic of the drinks that you're serving for friends and family would be some that you uh, think are going to absolutely slay. And then maybe some that you're a little bit you know, you want some feedback on, uh, at least that's how I would do it. And my experience was I had a couple of good drinks and I had a couple that absolutely missed the mark. And the interesting thing that I want to note about, you know, what they were doing is in each market, it seems like they're the goal of the death and co is to be death and co, but to release a completely unique cocktail menu for that market. So the cocktails on the menu in DC are different than the ones in New York, different than the ones in Denver, et cetera. And so, you know, relative to scale uh, or, or the chainification, right? TGI Friday's manual where they teach you how to make every drink and you have to memorize all the drinks and they're the same at each. 468. Right, so can, can, we, can we think about that a little bit? So take what I've just given you and you know it's kind of like the opposite the opposite of of what you were talking about because instead of trying to do everything the same way at each location they're saying well it's going to be death and co but we're going to launch a completely new menu and where does that what what does that make you kind of think of relative to some of the forces that we've been discussing well let's let's talk it out i don't really have an opinion on it but i'm sure we can form one if we drink enough coffee um I know Death & Co here very well. I know Alex Day. Right. I know Dave Kaplan. I even know Ravi De Rossi a little bit. 
and it opened as an ultra lower east side New York City speakeasy. Darker than most, hidden behind a door, um, you know, strong drinks, bitter drinks. It has grown to be a brand. Death & Co. is a brand. Like, for any of the listeners who don't know, it's so much of a brand, they got a $200,000 advance for the Death & Co. cocktail book, which exceeds pretty much every other advance everyone's ever got for a cocktail book put together, right? Um, I think for good reason. It's a very good book. It's a very good book. I have it uh, right here on the shelf. So what is a chain, right? I think that the hardest number of bars to own is is one. And if you open a second branch, for most people, that's the only time they really are forced to start thinking about, okay, what is my bar? What is the brand of my bar, the ethos? What does it mean? Who is it for? Very few bars sit down and do that exercise and put it on paper into what I would call a brand book ahead of time. Like the Dead Rabbit is one that does that and continually evolves it. So will Hazel and Apple, Sean Muldoon's new bar in Charleston. But very few bars do that. I don't think Death & Co. did it with the first bar. They just went in to open a really cool bar and they succeeded. Um, Death & Co. number two, which I haven't been to, I know a lot of people who have, is an all-day bar in the hotel lobby in Denver. So it's not a speakeasy. It's not dark. You know, it's it's not on the Lower East Side of New York. So I would imagine Dave and Alex and Tyson and all the rest of the team have had to sit down and say, well, what are we? I and I don't know what that is because I haven't broken into their office in weeks. Um, I don't know where they came out with. And the nature of a chain, a brand, is that it's reliable. You can... There's lots of jewelry stores around the world, many, many, many. But if you get your lady or your gentleman a bracelet from Tiffany, you know it'll be well received. If you buy your buddy a bottle of Macallan, there's lots of other single malt scotches out there, arguably better ones, but a bottle of Macallan is not wrong. Right. So if you choose a Death & Co., I do tend to think, given the fame of the New York thing, that that would be, if it was my mini group, that would be my model. And Death & Co. would open a Death & Co. that felt like Death & Co. wherever it went, whether you were in D.C. or London or Oslo or Mumbai. Right. How, do you, how do you say cocktail in, in Indian Death & Co.? Death & Co. And if you're listening, Alex, you can have that one for free. <laughs> uh, I think... Also, if you look at the bigger picture of chains of hotels, chains of restaurants, they do tend to um, adhere to what's called the Raymond Lowy model. Do you know who that is? He's a designer, most famous post-war designer in the USA, designed Air Force One, designed Lucky Strike, designed the New York subway cars, all that. And his saying was, uh, Maya, most advanced, yes, acceptable. So if he presented a design to a customer that was completely, completely balls to the wall innovative, the most advanced that he could make it, the client would normally decline it because they didn't see anything they recognized there. And if he presented a design to a client that was basically just a tweak on an existing design, it's completely acceptable. Well, the client would reject that too because there wasn't enough new stuff in it. So Lowy's mantra, his philosophy was most advanced, yes, acceptable. And this translates into 
chains of hotels and bars and restaurants and 7-Elevens and tire repair stores, as far as I'm concerned, which is you have an acceptable chunk of it. So let's say every Death & Co has 15 of the identical drinks that are the same, whatever Death & Co you go to anywhere in the world, right? And then it has one page that pays homage to whatever city it's in. That would work for everybody. You could have all your hero drinks there. You can have the Oaxaca Old Fashioned and whatever other drinks there are. And your staff can also show off what they're proud about in DC or London or Oslo or Copenhagen. So a bit of Maya is how I think you achieve credibility and success Mm. with a chain, right? There's no point 100% cookie cuttering it all around the world. Right. And there's also the approach where it's a different experience in each one and it doesn't look the same. That's damaging for your brand. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And and I think it, it being friends and family and, and us only having a, a limited menu is, is certainly, certainly colored the experience that I had because, you know, having the full menu, I, they more than likely would have had some of those those classics on there. So I'm probably speaking a little bit out of turn in my uh, in my tacit criticism here. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think that's, you know, I think it's interesting to think about the the project of having to go in though, and like so like imagine you were Tyson, who's who's essentially the the NSO trainer for the various Death and Co locations. Like imagine yourself into that role, and like how do you how would you compare what he has to do or has had to do at all these different locations? with what you were doing when you went and opened a new TGI Fridays? Uh, I mean, it was, so to give you a little background, it was a really good organization, right? Uh, There was only one franchisee in the UK. It was Whitbread, a brewery, who had run some Fridays under franchise in Seattle or around um, Washington State. So one franchisee, really high standards, and we, as a result made great money as bartenders. To give you an idea, if you are working, not the head bartender, but a senior bartender in any top cocktail bar in London, take your pick, right? You are unlikely to make more than 28 or 29,000 pounds a year, right? In London. We made up to 35,000 in 1993, right? And all the, all the outlets made money. The uh, Covent Garden one was regularly the number one TJ Fridays in the world. It would, and it wasn't very big. It was probably 50 people at the bar, 120 restaurant seats. It regularly had sales of a million pounds a week. Wow. Right? Mm-hmm. So that all by saying TJ's has uh, fallen very far in its time. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then, it was a well-oiled machine. And as a trainer, you were just a cog in it because, first of all, Everybody in every department had training systems. Every department had trainers and NSOs. The managers all went through bar and kitchen training and literally became certified bartenders and certified cooks and stuff like that. So first of all, everyone was already on the training train and they expected to be trained and have manuals and spreadsheets and setups and breakdowns and to be checked out. At the end of the night, your bar manager or head bartender would come around with a a million watt flashlight and check out your station to make sure you got every nook and cranny. Nice. Right? So you were 
you were in that situation already. And that's a sort of invisible infrastructure that you can easily take for granted that might not be in, you know, some of the nascent groups yet. Right. Um, but let's talk about similarities too. Yeah. You're still, you're coming into a new store. Uh, you're probably helping to hire the staff. And again, is there a structure for hiring staff? How many interviews? What procedures do you follow? Do you give them one of these tests? Do you give them a trial shift? Because the whole point is to create consistency across the stores so that there's consistency experience for the guest and to drive down operating costs and increase uh, quality of service and efficiency uh, for the staff. So you come in, the staff, and you train them. And then you train trainers. And when you leave, hopefully you're leaving behind trained staff, at least one trainer on the team to train new staff because people will quit and whatnot, and managers who know how to manage these staff. I cannot stress that enough. It, many, many times in my career, I've been hired as a trainer to come in and train staff, and I do it. And I come back six months or a year later, and half the staff are gone, and the half that are left are not doing all the things I taught them. Maybe they're not doing any of the things I taught them because no one ever made them. Their managers didn't manage them. The primary trainer of staff in a bar or a restaurant is the shift manager. You should aim to teach each of your staff members one thing every single shift, right? And that will wind up being, what, 200 shifts a year? If you could teach your staff 200 things a year, every year, you'd have the best staff in the world, right? So that's the, that's the thing. And again, my question would be, apart from teaching the bartenders, are you teaching the managers and developing the managers more importantly, because everybody needs to be constantly developed. You can't just uh, development after initial training. It could be things like, okay, we're all going to read this book and meet up next month and talk about it. Or we're all going to watch this video. Or we're all going to watch two episodes of the bear, right? <laughs> or, Hey, check out this podcast from Eric. You should listen to it. We'll all talk about it. Sure. That's what, it doesn't have to be formal classroom training, right? It might be as well, but it doesn't have to be. So that would be, uh, the similarities and possible differences between my old role and whatever Tyson and those other people uh, right. will be doing. Right. Like this, they've got a whole crew at the Dead Rabbit mm -hmm. all gearing up to do this too. Right. Uh, what you said, I think starting with this notion of invisible infrastructure, which I love, I, I love thinking about bar infrastructure because it's something that a lot of people don't think about. You know, it could be anything from hardware, you know, to systems that you have in place. And, and I, th I think it all all can qualify in a, in a certain respect if you think about it in the right way. But uh, when you were mentioning the the training that has to occur, I think you you kind of maybe hit on a couple of different models of training, right? There's the literal information transfer, like, like you know, uh, all right, I'm going to take my USB stick and plug it into your brain, which is kind of like the memorization of the 400 plus different cocktails at TGI Fridays, which is like, you know, literally your brain is a computer. You need to be able to go into that file and access this bit of information and spit it out on command versus what you might refer to more as a contagion style model where you're trying to infect your staff with the 
particular strain of culture that you're looking to scale across the different locations, which might be a, a slightly different thing. So how do you think about like those, like maybe culture, for example, like is, is there, is there anything that you've seen as particularly effective or ineffective when trying to scale that, that maybe the softer kind of information? They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, in the best situation, you want both. The marketing guru, Peter Drucker said, culture beats strategy every time, mm -hmm. right? Or, uh, to paraphrase a quote from um, uh, Jim Sullivan, who wrote the amazing book, Service It Sells, with Phil Roberts, um, I'll take a motivated, cheerful, outgoing guy with a folding card table and a cooler full of beers and ice against an unmotivated world's 50 best bar. Sure. Anytime, right? Like having formal training programs gives you a structure to spend time with staff, right? The most important thing about the Friday's program was it was up to six weeks long and it was one-on-one. -on -one. Occasionally it might be two-on-one, -on -one, but it was generally one-on-one. -on -one. So you spent hours and hours and hours with your trainer. You know, you got really to be part of the bar team because you essentially shadowed them for over a month. So by the time... You qualified. If you qualified, you were already part of that culture. It's not like you walked in off the street and did a shift the next day. So culture is something that really needs to be thought about at the recruitment level, right? Or re even at the attraction level. What kind of people are you attracting to respond to your ads or come to your open calls? Who are the ones and how can you spot them? Mm -hmm. First time it ever became apparent to me. I never really thought about, you know, hiring or whatever. And I was working in Rotterdam in this big, busy, successful bar. And there were day shifts. And I remember doing a day shift and we had application forms on the wall. And this was the bar everybody wanted to work at. And you didn't have to speak Dutch to work at it. So it was attractive for foreign people. And we wanted a certain degree of English speaking people there as well. So I was working the day shift. This guy comes in fills out the form, comes up to the bar, he says, hey, I filled out the form, can I talk to a manager? And we had little walkie-talkies. So I walked around the bar and I called my manager, Arno. I'm like, hey, there's a guy here, filled out an application form, uh, wants to talk to a manager. Can he talk to you? And he's, Arno said, no. Tell him to make an appointment. I'm here all day tomorrow. P pick a time between 2 and 4 p.m. So I went back to the guy, he said, okay, tell me what time you want to come in tomorrow between 2 and 4 p.m. And the guy said, whatever, 3 p.m. And he went off. And later on, I talked to Arno and he said, that's the first test. Is this a person who is organized enough to make an appointment and then keep it on time, mm. right? So the culture of how you attract people, then of how you recruit them, you say, okay, this is what the job is. I want to be transparent with you. These are the opportunities. You have to be able to do these kinds of things and those kinds of things. That's another one. How you train them is part of the culture, as you've pointed out. And then how you manage and develop them. Right? Are you going to manage them in a, in a brutal manner? Are you going to manage them in a, in a way where everybody learns? I mean, obviously, we, we say all this, but even if you have two or three places, your company might still just be bumping along financially. And you, as an owner or a senior person, might be just you know, scraping to make payroll. And you might not have to feel, you might not feel you have time for all this 
touchy-feely Danny Meyer, Will Gradara stuff. Right. You do. That's the irony. And usually most of it doesn't actually cost anything. But when you're under stress, you're under stress. Sure. Sure. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Barkhart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Barcart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, bar and brand insights courtesy of Philip Duff, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2023.